Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Byron Yankee is a well-known name and a well-known figure in Idaho education circles. He has spent his 51-year professional career in education as a teacher, as a principal, and for the past decade, he has managed the State Board of Education's College and Career Advising Program. He's worked on initiatives to try to make it easier for Idaho high school students to apply for college, to apply for financial aid. And that puts him in the middle of one of the most important issues facing Idaho education, the challenge of trying to get high school graduates to stay in school. Byron retired last week from the State Board, but I had a chance to catch up with him through the miracle of Zoom a few days after his retirement. We, we talked earlier this week about his career and about the challenges facing Idaho as the state tries to convince more students to continue their education and go on to college. Here's our conversation. Well, Byron, thank you for taking the time. Uh, less than a week into your retirement, uh, I did want to pull you back onto, onto the podcast here to talk uh, about your career and your views on uh, where we're headed in terms of education and, and getting students to continue their education. You spent 51 years in, in education, and let's start from the start here a little bit. I mean, what ignited your passion for education? Um. Well, actually, um, I had really no plans to um, start a career uh, in education. Um, I took a work-study job at Idaho State University. Um, there were two that were left. One was a teaching assistant at the laboratory school uh, there on campus, and the other one was as an attendance clerk at Alameda Junior High. And so for 92 cents an hour, uh, that was a way to, to help uh, uh, pay for a room and board at Idaho State University. And uh, I fell in love with the kindergartners, uh, not so much with <laughs> junior high students initially, <laughs> uh, but um, then uh, my uh, soon-to-be wife was an education major, which kind of also supported the interest with that. Uh, and uh, so from there, uh, we did the unusual, now unusual step of uh, finishing college in four years. Uh, we transferred from Idaho State University and went to the University of Idaho. And uh, I say it's a now unusual step to do four years because it really is. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not typical uh, at this point. And so um, in the... Um, early 70s there were as I, there were teacher shortages all over and uh, we saw a note on a bulletin board at Moscow about interviewing for uh, teaching in Australia and so during the gas sh shortage we drove 22 hours from Moscow down to Hayward California and interviewed with hundreds of other teachers and uh, we're hired. So um, we, uh, our first uh, full-time paying teaching jobs were in Brisbane, Australia. And so uh, it was a cultural difference significantly. Uh, my school was an immigrant school across from a General Motors factory. And uh, there were between 40 and 60 kids in a classroom, typically, uh, with no textbooks, a lot of chalk, and a lot of chalkboards. Um, and uh, 
I learned a lot uh, because uh, from the moment I started the talk, the room erupted as kids translated back and forth <laughs> in various different languages. It was a little bit uh, stepping into the um, 18th century in that as a, as a state-run school, we had a headmaster and three times a day, hundreds of kids had to march in line formation down to this big parade ground uh, to listen to the headmaster. In the morning, there was a homily uh, and we all sang God Save the Queen, uh, or attempted to. Uh, the second parade was pretty brief. It was kind of general announcements, but it also included um, the uh, public caning of kids that had been referred to their, by their teachers. Oh. That was quite a shock. Uh, there were a lot of Americans in my school because it was difficult to teach. It was difficult to keep Australian teachers there because it wasn't very desirable. And then um, in the afternoon after what was called big lunch, uh, which was basically when the um, General Motors factory was kind of closing down, there would be um, some encouragement about planning for the next day. And then the classes that were perceived to be the most successful got to march off the playground right in front of everyone else, kind of a, you know, military salute type of uh, period of, of time. So uh, quite interesting. Yeah, so, yeah. so you jump into teaching halfway across the world. You come come back to Idaho. I mean, what do you take from that experience in Brisbane that can translate to an Idaho classroom or, or translate to working as a principal in an Idaho school? So uh, from there, I uh, we moved to Boise. I got uh, a long-term subbing in uh, first grade and also in kindergarten. And that kind of reignited, okay, there's a reason uh, to do what we're doing uh, there. Um, got interested in uh, teaching at that period of time. The movement was criterion reference tests in Boise. So we were giving short-term tests for kids to see how they were monitoring and, and uh, how they were progressing. Um, that was kind of uh, a turning point for me because um, while you can keep track of how kids go from day to day, it's really about the bigger picture. And so I was motivated to, uh, to take um, administration classes to be a principal because the uh, principal that I had was very, very focused on a, a small, narrow uh, set of skills for students. And, and I really felt like there was a bigger perspective. So I got a teaching uh, assignment and a principalship and started my principal career in Napa, Idaho in 1981. And that really, I, I've got to think, really informed your experience going forward to, to where you where you wound up at the state board. I mean, that, that experience as a principal yeah. 
talk about that a little bit. I mean, you know, what, what did that show you about kids and the decisions that they're that they're making? So the first uh, thing that I learned in my, my uh, as a being a principal is that um, it's the people that make a building and a system work, and it's the people there that bring about the success. And policies can help, and sometimes get in the way uh, of that. And so investing in teachers and investing in listening and listening to students was very very helpful. All of my elementary careers, my uh, schools were at high need, uh, uh, high poverty schools, which I loved. You learned a lot about the challenges of people and to try to figure out how you can help support the advocacy uh, of the individuals with it. It was at a time where special education was just starting. Mm-hmm. One of my uh, schools that I opened, we had the first ever um, special education preschool. We all had some of the first ever special education classes for students whose needs were significant physically and mentally. Right. It was a time where you were learning lots. And um, then my last school, which was um, in the West Ada School District, had 22 different languages spoken. Uh, and again, it was the opportunity to learn how kids interact and what you could do to support them in decision-making. Because what was interesting in my last uh, assignment was that um, I met with the fifth grade students several times a year, one-on-one, sometimes with translators, sometimes with kid translators, and say, what do you want to do after you leave elementary school? What do you want to do after you finish middle school? What do you want to do after you finish high school? And I have to tell you, the significant part was that nearly every one of the refugee kids had a plan, probably some of the parents. They had a plan. And many of the uh, non-refugee students were stuck on being American Idol, Boise State football player, those types of things with them. And so it was that kind of um, question, so what makes the difference between uh, young people who have a plan and those who want to you know, go forward and then figure it out along the way? Mm-hmm. And so that got me into that thinking about uh, working with older students. My first uh, uh, work with the state board was um, a um, document called Barriers to Post-Secondary Education, where I did community forums across the state and interviews and stakeholders and kids and, and uh, surveys. And that was in uh, 2012. And so while some things have changed since 2012, uh, there are a lot of things that remain the same, right? Despite despite our efforts, and here we are, a decade after you did that report, and the report, if it's titled "Barriers," that implies obviously that it's plural; that there are multiple yeah. barriers that affect different students in different ways. What are the biggies? Well, the bigger the biggies are the cost of education, in terms of so uh, you. Uh, you know, reflect back uh, um, my generation and, and part of the generation after that could pay for college. 
uh, by working summer jobs and doing part-time jobs during college, during the, the school days. That's not the case now. Mm -hmm. One of the big takeaways from 2012 is that, you know, I asked uh, adults, we asked students, we asked uh, teachers, we had counselors to identify the constitution at a four-year school and a five-year and, and a community college. Well, uh, uh, in that, in 2012, less than 30% could make the right choice. And that was from four A, B, C, and D with that. And so what remains the same about that is that, yes, the cost is a lot, but people typically don't think about the cost of college until nearly the end. Mm -hmm. And then to be able to say, oh, gee, I'm going to save for it, or I'm going to get scholarships, um, that makes it very, very difficult. Along the way, the federal financial aid has increased. It has increased um, slightly over those period of times, but we're hopefully emerging from a period of time uh, where the, to complete the FAFSA to be able to see if you get federal financial aid um, through to onerous <laughs> numbers of questions and, and trying to uh, look at uh, some of the details uh, of saying, okay, um, does this individual, does this family qualify for federal financial aid? In Idaho, the number of questions and what seemed to be, it's really, who's going to see this information and is it really somebody else's business to see how much money I make mm -hmm. a year? Um, we, start, we throw into kind of a community, you know, challenge of uh, not even wanting to start uh, the application for federal financial aid. That's one of the things that we have there. Right. Uh, and, right. and, you know, uh, two other barriers from the 2012 was the fact that many of our students were uh, community bound, site bound with it. And uh, during that time, you know, the, uh, some of us on the outside you know, use the phrase, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And um, there are still remnants of that. You know, the challenge of saying, okay, there are different types of jobs and different types of interests and careers outside of your small community. So that was takeaway uh, number two. And the last one is the fact that young people in 2012, and it's still the same, you rely upon a trusted adult right. when it comes to those types of decisions. And in 2012, you know, that, that typically applied to, uh, to a mom or a dad. A trusted adult right now because of our, our uh, changes and everything from technology, social media, can be a wider uh, group of individuals and uh, that's one, one thing I think we need to try to figure out how to provide trusted adults uh, to those people, you know, not only in high school, but as they are young adults, how do we access accurate information that is both responsive to the needs of the person receiving it, but is also knowledgeable. Right, I mean, because at some level, what you can do at the state board level, what you were doing at the state board level, 
what state policymakers can do is they, they can make the process more navigable. They make it easier. They make it more manageable. They can try to make the case on affordability. But you've, you've got to also reach out to the parents, the, the trusted adults, and help make the help make the case, have, help them make the case for, for college. Absolutely. We are, are living in a time where the paradox of choice comes into play. There are so many options that are out there that the more options that is, that maybe the harder it is to decide uh, what you may want to do. And we have generational things. Um, uh, when I graduated from high school, there were two choices, go to college or uh, to get a job at the, at, my, uh, at the garage where my dad worked or work on a farm. Those are the two choices. Right now, young people have so many choices with that. And you know, one of the things I think we need to think about, uh, Kevin, is the fact that sometimes uh, the policy decisions and often the structure of what we're doing to help young people are based upon a generation previous experience. And that is that, you know, a lot of the policymakers went four years through college or lots of even the moms and dads maybe did five years with it. But college is not the same. Careers are not the same. How you can get from point A to point B are not the same. And so there's where we have to begin to think about how to activate uh, accurate information and about choices. And it really is delivering, you know, the types of options in the environment in a way that uh, our target audiences need to uh, find desirable. That might mean taking college classes to the workplace. Uh, you know, this uh, the springtime I visited uh, uh, one of our, our uh, kids who live in New York City in a big high rise. There are college classes on the third floor of this 47 story building with that, uh, as an example mm -hmm. with that. We also need to be thinking of delivering uh, classes in a way that might be short term, that kind of stackable type of skills and mm -hmm. credentials that are there. And over the last uh, 10 years, the uh, interest and need and, and um, uh, raise in status of career technical education, boy, that's an option that we really need to figure out how to activate uh, young people uh, to pursue the type of series of careers that are there. Uh, it used to be VOTEC classes were considered to be, oh, uh, that was for uh, kids who were gonna be farmers or, or you know, only, only, only um, you know, work in the trades. But career technical education now with the resources that we have available with the needs that employers have with our ability to kind of provide those skills, those are really desirable careers. And uh, we have to figure out how to, how to make sure that desirability and its availability match. And, and it's interesting because you, going back to your own experience, I mean, you were a rural high school graduate. I mean, you went to Weezer High School, correct? And you were talking about how your choices coming out of high school were either college or work. Now yeah. we have high school graduates with more options but many of them are still 
choosing that work option. I mean, it's it's your phrase about the F F one fifty syndrome. You know, high school yeah. kids they graduate, they go into the workforce, they buy a truck. That's the choice that they make, and it may not be long term the best uh, financial choice for them, the best career choice for them. Yeah. <laughs> How do you get around that? Yeah. Well, I have to say, uh, again, we get uh, uh, reflect upon vocabulary. So um, it wasn't that long ago that a non-traditional college student met somebody that was, you know, 28 or 29. And those are non-traditional students, you know, typically are community college students. Well, uh, right now, uh, there's a lot of non-traditional uh, college students of all ages with that. And, you know, the, the idea of, of making a career choice right out of high school or a, a choice about going to school has gotten exaggerated to the point that I'm not sure we have been uh, as helpful as possible. The pandemic uh, did horrible things to the structure of education and primarily to traditions. Mm-hmm. You know, traditions like the high school prom, traditions like the graduation, you know, traditions that, you know, allowed you to get to a spring track meet if your grades were high enough. You know, when we switched to to hybrid or or remote learning, all those things went out of out the window. And traditionally, how do you ask for help? Well, the Uh, educators pivoted very, very quickly with that. But the bottom line is that there's still this dissonance, you know, between what uh, young people thought was um, what would happen if you went away to college. (laughs) That wasn't the same. They heard from their their, uh, peers that were slightly older, you know, you can go to, uh, to a college, but you're going to be online or, you know, you're going to have these types of limitations. And so right. it, challenged know, the whole, it challenged the yeah. whole tradition of what it's like to be a college freshman. You know, the you know, process of yep. moving onto a campus, of having your folks drive you to campus and, and start your classes, not knowing, you know, it, not knowing in 2020 if you were going to be able to go onto campus, if you were going to go into a classroom, if it was going to be virtual, even if you got to the campus. I mean, all those traditions were thrown out the window as well. Yeah, and and uh, the peer groups got very very small. And you know, one thing about peer groups, or or even senior seniors like myself who meet at the same coffee shop, you know, at the same time every time of day. Sometimes you create your own reality, mm-hmm. and and you support the types of things that others believe with that. So here's the challenge, Kevin. The challenge is to convince people that there are many options available, that there are entry points and off-ramps, that um, the career that you might start uh, with uh, probably is not the one you're going to finish, unlike myself, and maybe even you, you know. you're going to have a series of, of careers with it. You're going to have a variety of ways to learn the types of t- uh, the jobs and skills you have. It could be apprenticeship. It could be, you know, just having a boss and a supervisor. But somehow we have to figure out that, um, you know, it's going to require the focus on 
aspiration instead of inspiration. We you know, spend a lot of time with commercials and, and social medias trying to inspire young people to make you know, a choice that, that uh, we think is a good one for them to pursue. But the bottom line is that question, what do I want to be? when I grow up, or what do I want to be in a year? What do I want to be in several years? That being able to aspire is something that we really need to continue to hone the options to make that aspiration something achievable. And at the same time, show young people that their aspirations can change over time. Their their career choices will change over time, and that's okay. Just be prepared for it. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, uh, hearing from your your near age peers that what you're doing is okay, uh, you know, gets you going and me say, okay, yeah, you know, uh, maybe I want to be an apprentice because that's the new, that's the new explosion of op- opportunities is apprenticeships with that. But we also have to be messaging you know, the adults or people that that um, are in the community, people that they might see or value their information, we have to message that it's okay also, mm-hmm. you know, because your peers, that's really great, but sometimes we need to, to hear that it's okay from people that might be making decisions for us and might be, you know, somebody that we just uh, have a casual relationship with. So a last question, maybe to sum it all up, I mean, what, what are we not talking about as as a state that would change this conversation for young adults? What are we not doing? I mean, I know that you at the state board, you, you did a lot of things in terms of the mechanics of applying for college, the, the mechanics of pursuing college, but what are we not talking about or doing that we need to be doing? I, I think, you know, uh, in interviews, you're, t- you're told to stall for time by saying, Kevin, that's a great question. So I'm going to say, Kevin, that's a, a, a great question. I thought it was okay. I guess, I guess, I, I guess my my perspective is um, that um, you know at, at at a state level, if we could activate the energy and the creativity of a um, peer group that um, maybe didn't do the traditional way uh, out of high school to college. If we activate those that are in a career that um, they learned on their own or uh, learned by going a year or two years, the bottom line is I think we have to do uh, a really great job of listening uh, to our consumers and our target audiences. And, and I think that as difficult as it is, you know, taking a year and really focusing on trying to get the feedback of the young people that we're trying to influence, I think that would, would have value. And I, I think at the end of that, you know, just the fact that uh, people are invited in to provide ideas and suggestions, you know, ideas and suggestions that, you know, can be reviewed and, and accepted. I think that's a really good thing to do. So and in addition, so maybe you know, education, 
education is all about relationships. So maybe in, a, in addition to pitching the value proposition, you have to listen to students about what they value. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, it, it's, uh, there are lots of options out there. Uh, and to try to, to narrow it down is a real challenge. Uh, but we can do it. I think I'm more optimistic than ever. Uh, I just uh, really feel like we have to, you know, do that uh, relationship building and uh, do the listening, become a, a state of trusted adults. Well, Byron, I want to congratulate you on your retirement and your, your career. I'm a little bit skeptical that you're truly retired, so there may be a chance that we're uh, talking again down the road, but I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thanks. Again, that was Byron Yankee, who retired just last week from the State Board of Education. He was the board's uh, manager of the College and Career Advising Program. A lot of news broke this past week in education policy and education politics, and we have that all for you at idahoednews.org. The latest reading scores came out and showed across the board improvements from where we were in 2021 coming out of the pandemic. And the reading scores are almost back to where they were in 2019 before the pandemic. We have a detailed breakdown of the scores. Speaking of numbers, 100,000. That's about how many signatures Reclaim Idaho turned in at the State House on Wednesday as they take one step closer to getting an education funding initiative on the November ballot. We have that story for you. And 400,000, as in $400,000, that's how much the University of Idaho paid Alaska Airlines in subsidies to provide air service from Boise to Pullman, Washington. I have that story and an explanation from the U of I about why they believe that this is a good investment. I also want to take a minute here on the podcast to introduce you to our two newest reporters. Sadie Dittenberg joins us uh, from the College of Idaho. She is going to be uh, covering the State Department of Education and the transition at SDE. She's going to help cover the elections. She's also going to help cover the next round of the Idaho legislature, the 2023 session. She also turned a really nice feature earlier this week about a student who used the pandemic to embark on a nationwide college search. Really interesting, really fun feature. Check that out. Carly Flandro joins us. She's going to be working out of Pocatello. She comes to us from the classroom. She had spent the past eight years teaching at Century High School in Pocatello. She's also a former journalist, so she's a uh, reporter turned educator turned reporter. She's uh, joining us. And like I say, she's going to be working out of Pocatello. She had a feature earlier this week on a free lunch program in Pocatello uh, designed to help uh, help families get through the summer. So look for their bylines and look for their stories in the weeks and months to come. And check all of our news out at idahoednews.org. Follow us on Twitter at idahoednews. We tweet out links to our latest stories, bulletins on any breaking news items. Follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there and check back here for another podcast. No podcast next week. I'm taking a, a couple of days off next week, but I'll have another edition of the podcast here in two weeks. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good summer. Have a good summer.